Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we typically think about learning, we tend to think about being in a structured school and doing it for some reason, to get a grade, to get a degree, to get a certain job. But my guest today says that if we want to live a truly flourishing life, we ought to make time for studying thought long after we leave formal education behind and embrace learning as something wonderfully useless. Her name is Zena Hitz, and she's the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. We begin our conversation with how the unique great books curriculum at St. John's College works and how Zena got her undergraduate degree there and went on to pursue a more traditional academic path only to discover the downsides of the modern university system and be drawn back to St. John's where she now is a tutor. From there we turn to what Zena argues are the hidden pleasures of the intellectual life which include learning for its own sake as opposed to doing it to advance some goal, developing a rich inner life and embracing the idea of true leisure. We then discuss how thinking and studying for its own sake is different from watching TV or playing video games and how it can create a resilience building inner directed refuge from an externally driven world. We end our conversation with how you can carve out space for contemplation amidst the overload and noise of modern life, the importance of finding a community that wants the same thing, and how to get started with deeper study and reflection by reading the great books. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash lost in thought. Zena Hitz, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So you got a new book out, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, which we're going to talk about today. But you're also a tutor at St. John's College. And for those who aren't familiar with St. John's, it's a unique university, but a lot of people don't know about it. What's the curriculum like? And can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a very small liberal arts college. We have about on each campus somewhere around 400, 450 undergraduate students and the program is set up as a encounter with great books, starting with ancient Greece in the freshman year and concluding with 20th century authors in the senior year. And what's particularly unique about our program is that we have a seminar where we read great works of literature, philosophy, political theory, Plato, Aristotle, Adam Smith, etc., Jane Austen. But we also have a mathematics and a science component where we do mathematics, also chronologically, starting with Euclid and ending with Einstein. We have a science curriculum that looks at science from original papers and original experiments. So it's a, it's a foundational look at science and also a music curriculum. And we, we have also some languages. We study ancient Greek and French. So one of the many things that's unique is that it's an all-required curriculum, that is, there's basically no electives. Everyone does the same thing, which builds a really uh, intense sense of community on campus that not only is everyone, say, among the freshmen reading at the same time, but there's a common store of books that the students can call upon as they progress in their studies, and they can talk to anyone on campus about these things. So the other unique thing about it, apart from the, so to speak, the content of the curriculum and the books, is that the classes are conducted by discussion. So the, the faculty, like myself, we take a more of a side role, more of a collaborative role. We don't call ourselves professors for that reason. We don't hand down the truth from on high about what, what is going on with the material, but we work alongside with our students. We let them take the lead, and that helps not only to keep the discussions fresh and spontaneous, but also it, it makes sure that the learning is directed by the, the students' own questions. So we, we're trying to 
keep the liberal, that is the freedom in liberal arts education, we think that education is about cultivating a free mind, a person who can formulate their own questions and undertake their own answers. And so it's important to us that the students be given a lot of responsibility over their learning. So that's it. That's it in a nutshell. We have also MA programs for adults, which are probably more common among your listeners. But that's the that's the core of what we do is our undergraduate program. And the two campuses, there's one in Maryland and the other one's in Santa Fe, right? That's right. So the the Annapolis campus is closer to all the East Coast stuff, but the Santa Fe campus is exceptionally beautiful. So that's that's what divides us is the, yeah. <laughs> the well, preferences between the two places. I love Santa Fe. Oh my gosh, Santa Fe is incredible. Well, and are there is there like tests or like do you have to like take like an oral examination? Like how do you is there do you figure out proficiency? Like how do you decide? Yes, you understand this concept, or is that does that even happen? Well, what I would say is that the education is really student directed in the sense I was describing earlier. That is. An individual student is meant to bring their own questions to class and undertake their own work and come to their own conclusions. And going along with that, we think of learning as being progress that a student makes. I mean, if you think about it, what's learning? Learning is moving from one place to another. You start in one starting place, you end up in another place. And our ordinary schemes of education, which rely on testing and competency and so on, don't really respect that fact about learning. It's more about reaching a certain set standard. And for this type of education, I guess I'd say there there's a minimum standard. That is, you, you have to stay engaged. You have to be thinking seriously. You have to be putting in some work, turning up for class. But there's no, I think we're reluctant to say there's one thing that a liberal educated person should look like. So no, we don't have many tests. We do have some oral exams, which are really more like conversations about what the student read, a way to explore one-on-one with a student what they've been thinking about. And we have large essays every year and also for many small essays for classes. But we we try to de-emphasize grades and de-emphasize in general the cultural achievement, not because we're hippies necessarily, but because we think that learning is something which is individual and is best determined by an individual and an individual's progress. Well, let's talk about how you ended up at St. John's, uh, being a tutor at St. John's, because I think it talks, I mean, it's sort of like this book is in a little, in, in some ways, it's a sort of an intellectual biography of how you've gotten to think about what it means to have an intellectual life. You weren't always at St. John's. What were you doing before that? And how did you end up there? Well, I was an undergraduate there. I had heard about it as a high school student and was totally repelled. It sounded completely boring and uninteresting and nothing like I wanted to do. But I I was on campus for a summer program for high school students uh, that was, we had a class that was taught in the St. John's style and I was just instantly enchanted and wanted to stay. So I had a very formative uh, or maybe transformative experience there as an undergraduate. Then I went away to graduate school and I ended up by some good luck and some very elite programs. So I became a, a research academic. So research academia is the most prestigious part of academia and that's what, you know, the great research universities, the R1 universities are the, the prestige centers of American education. So I was a research academic and I taught at mostly public universities for uh, a number of years, eight years, something like that. And I think there were two things that went wrong. At first, of course, coming from St. John's, it's a wonderful place, but it, 
we prize the amateur, you know, we prize the lover of learning for its own sake. And that has a certain cost. That is, you you can miss out on really understanding a topic in depth in all of its context, in all of its facets, with all of its details. And I actually loved that aspect of being a research academic. I loved getting into the depths and the details of, of the materials. I was, a, I was a scholar. I still am a scholar of classical philosophy. And so I was doing scholarly research, and that was supposed to be the center of my life, the center of my career. And I found it harder and harder to feel motivated by it. I enjoyed it, but it seemed a, a bit, the audiences are small and it's not obvious really what the social worth of that kind of research was, or it wasn't clear to me then. And then the other thing that drove me down in ordinary academia was the teaching, which uh, as in most places, it's uh, large classrooms, which really require you know, a focus on lectures, a focus on digesting down the material into a few points that need to be memorized or learned and then repeated. And that just wasn't the type of learning that I wanted to pass on to my students. And it was frankly boring after a while to keep doing it. it, it it's not intellectually exciting for the professor. And I suspect in most cases, it's really not intellectually exciting for the, for the students I think a lot of what's happened in our universities as far as the humanities and liberal arts is concerned is a kind of deadening of intellectual excitement thanks to these large classes, which are really not suited to the subject matter. So anyway, I got disillusioned. I kept casting around for something different, some different way of doing things. Couldn't figure it out. I finally, I had undergone a religious conversion right after I finished my PhD. I, I became Catholic. And so I, it was natural for me as a new convert to look at the various kinds of weird ways of life that the Catholic Church offers. So I ended up leaving the profession and uh, living in a Catholic religious community for a time in uh, rural Canada for three years. And when I was there, I thought a lot about I couldn't do much intellectual work. I had to really just be a more ordinary, grounded human being. And that forced me to really think about why why intellectual work, why study matters for ordinary people. And that in turn made me realize that I could be happy as an academic if I went back to St. John's as, a, as opposed to the, the research academic life that I'd been living previously. So that, that's a somewhat long-winded version of, of the story that I tell in the first part of my book. Well, let's talk about digging into the book and sort of your philosophy about learning. You you say that learning, the intellectual life, there's hidden pleasures to it. Like what what do you what sense is the intellectual life, the pleasures of intellectual life hidden? Well, the concept that seems to be central is learning for its own sake. So if most of us these days, when we think about going to college or going back to graduate school, we're thinking about trying to either advance ourselves in our careers in some way, get better jobs, get more prominence, or make an impact in the world in some way, make a difference, as they say. That is the opposite of hiddenness. So that is that is uh, what you might call worldliness or publicity or something like that. So learning for its own sake is hidden in the sense that, in one way, because it's useless. It doesn't make a difference in the same way that, say, pharmaceutical research makes a difference when people are figuring out how to cure COVID or similar life-threatening diseases. 
Uh, it doesn't have an obvious use, and that makes it hidden. That's one thing. The second way it's hidden is that I think it's part of the inner life of a human being. So it's something that we keep in ourselves, regardless of what else is going on in our lives. So I think one stock example, right? The bookworm sort of hiding in the corner, reading a book, is leading a kind of inner life. And likewise, if you are the sort of person who goes on walks and thinks about things, many of us are, that too is a kind of inner life. It's a kind of hidden life. So I wanted in my book, because we, we hear so much praise of impact and making a difference, I wanted to praise those other features of being a human being, what's private, what's inward, what is for its own sake, what doesn't necessarily make a splash. Because I, I think that, in fact, we, we need those things in order to be happy, healthy, flourishing human beings. Well, let's dig into these these ideas a little bit deeper. So let's talk. We can talk about learning for the sake of learning because this goes to Aristotle, right? Like ends and means and things like that. Exactly. And, right, and I think today in the modern world, we typically think of education like we. I think we give it a lot of lip service, like "Hey, learning for the sake of learning." But when we go to college, like what we mean is, well, you go to college so you can get a career and make money or whatever. That's right. So I don't. I think I want to be clear. I, in a way that I'm not always in these types of interviews, there's nothing wrong with learning for the sake of something else. That is, there's nothing wrong with studying medicine in order to become a doctor or studying massage in order to become a massage therapist or any of these things. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, becoming an engineer. It's, the problem is when we think that that's all there is to learning. And I think we think that's all there is to learning because we think that's all there is to life. Whereas if you think it through along the lines that someone like Aristotle thought about it, your life doesn't make sense if everything is a means to an end. So some things have got to be means to an end. If you want certain things, you do certain things to get them. But we have a a weird tendency to be workaholic, to instrumentalize absolutely everything, to seek seek out uh, modes of achievement as if they were valuable for their own sake and not for the sake of something else. So the, in other words, if you, so l- let me use a, a more down to earth example. I think I'm being a little abstract. You know, if I ask myself, why do I eat breakfast? Now that's an instrumental activity. Usually you eat breakfast for the sake of a bit of energy to get through your day, to stay healthy for nutrients, Uh, Well, why do you do that? Well, you do that because you need to work. You do that because you want to be there for your family. You could imagine giving a string of answers which never culminate in anything. What you want, it seems to me, to say about your own life is that there's some activity or set of activities that is what your life culminates in that constitute your well-being or your happiness, whether that's playing music or being with your family or studying or going on walks in nature, or whatever it is, it has. There has to be something like that, or your life doesn't make any sense. So that's that's the thought about means and ends, and that's that's the danger of instrumentalizing learning is that we lose track of the fact that there are forms of learning that are really just for their own sake. They don't have any use, and those are the things that need to be especially preserved in a in a market economy or in a very utility focused culture. We need to make a special effort to preserve the things which don't have an obvious use because they're, in fact, in a certain way, the most central things for us, the things that the places in which we flourish and are happy and which our lives culminate.
We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, all those things you described, taking walks in nature, spending time with family and friends, learning because you just enjoy it, like that's what we would call leisure. But you have this great section in the book, like particularly in America, we kind of lost touch with what it means to have a, a leisurely life. I think that's right. And I, I think you can see that actually in, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but the contrast with European culture where there's a bit more of a sense that there's more to life than work. And you see that in the, the way they take vacations and the way they use their weekends. I'm sure it's changing just as just as we have. I'm not sure it's built into Europe or anything like that. But whereas I myself, and I know many people who are like me, we're content working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. <laughs> and you, you know, you have to ask yourself at some point, what are you doing that for? Is that really what your life is all about? One example I use in the book that was I found very moving, it's, it was an essay on Medium a couple of years ago by a journalist uh, named Lauren Smiley, who's based out in the Bay Area. And uh, she was describing how, you know, in what's called the gig economy, you have these workers who are stacking job upon job to make a living. You know, they, they're an Uber driver part of the time, and they do Amazon delivery part of the time, and they just stack thing upon thing. And then she looks at the people that they're serving the sort of high-end tech workers in the Bay Area. And what are they doing with all of this time that's created by all of these conveniences, the DoorDash and the Uber and the, the delivery and the home cleaning service and the home hairdressing service and the home organizing service? You know, what are they doing with all the free time? Well, they're working more for their companies. <laughs> so they're putting in these huge long hours. A week. So you get this image of an upper class and a lower class, each of which is working their absolute butts off. And it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Human beings are meant to have some parts of their life that are dedicated to leisure. And leisure is not just resting up so you can do more work. It's again, it's what your life culminates in. It's what makes you flourish as a human being. And that that requires some discernment for individuals, but it's 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 always something for its own sake. I think it always has that structure. Now you had this great section you're describing that that dynamic, you know, have you all these like gig economy workers working for these titans of Silicon Valley. And here's, I'll read it because I I thought it really hit me. It says, the masters, quotation marks, of our current servant class have no leisure either. The slave is a slave of a slave. And these days at the top of the heap of slaves, there's not even an exploitative gentleman farmer writing essays, dissecting animals, and speculating on the nature of the political, but another slave at a higher social rank. Uh, Yes, that's right. When Aristotle wrote, of course, uh, Aristotle's notoriously what you'd call elitist. Elitist is in a way kind of a weak word for it. it. He's deeply inegalitarian thinker. So he thinks that if some human beings can live the best life and only a few are really capable of living the best life, because for Aristotle, the best life is really just philosophy, then it's perfectly reasonable to ask other people not to live a, to live a sort of substandard human life in order to provide for the necessities of the best people. And that's an idea that's had a lot of influence in uh, the history of, of Europe and the U.S. And that has a history for intellectual life because, of course, that's, it's that intellectual work which belongs to the top with the country gentleman and his researches. And, of course, I think I was probably thinking of someone like Thomas, a polymath like Thomas Jefferson, right, who, you know, if you go to Monticello, this guy was interested in absolutely everything and studied and thought and wrote. And that was all possible, of course, by, by slave labor. 
So part of what I want to do in my book, and it's not original to me, it's something which thinkers of the, the early to mid 20th century were also striving to do. It's to keep that idea, that Aristotelian idea of an intellectual life as involving leisure, as involving contemplation, as being necessary for human happiness, but noticing the ways in which ordinary people can also live it. So my book has a very strong egalitarian motive in that I I think that this type of, I think that thinking and study for its own sake are really for everyone. And I, I want to bring out the ways in which they benefit the lives of thinking and studying benefit the lives of, of ordinary people. And going along with that, I think it's going back to the passage you read, it's, it's of course, deeply ironic that aristocracy that we have now, such as it is, has no leisure, (laughs) has no beautiful products or incredible books, or it's just, it just keeps producing more and more of itself. That is more and more conveniences, more and more devices. And there's a sense in which our common life, as well as our individual life, is missing a point, is is missing some meaning or some something fundamental. And what is it about you know, learning, you know, reading the great books? It could be like, or learning about art or music. How is that different? You know, someone can say, well, I, I have leisure. Like I, I play a video game. I watch Netflix. I mean, how, is, how, are, how are those different from what you're kind of encouraging in the book? That's a great question. And I, I, I try, I think I fail sometimes. I try not to be too moralistic about it. So it's, I do think there's a difference between Netflix, doom scrolling on social media, playing video games. Those are normally what I would call a distraction. They're, they're not bad. Sometimes it's the best you can do. You're just too tired to do anything else. But they're not restorative. There isn't necessarily any kind of personal growth that results from them. The way that you, you tend to grow from learning, it's one of the things that makes learning learning. So it's the distinction's a bit intuitive and it's a bit flexible because, of course, you can imagine someone who really thought there's actually a philosopher working now uh, named uh, T. Nguyen who is thinking about games, including video games, and the ways in which they can be contemplative or the ways in which they involve real thinking. And that's, of course, a real possibility that you're, you're really thinking about things when you're playing games or, or you're exercising a creative capacity like as you would in uh, creating art or music. But in general, the difference is between distraction, something which wears you down in the end if you do it for too long, something which makes you feel empty after a long period of time, and the kinds of activities which are nutritious, so to speak. They, they, they give you something to, to grow from, to live on, to find rest in. And I think everyone can feel that distinction with a bit of reflection. We all know which things are restorative or make us grow and which things really just in the long term aren't good for us. For me, it's social media. That's my, that's my distraction of choice. But I know there's a difference between that and reading a good book or uh, playing music or or what have you. So I, I think most people have some some way of making the distinction in their own lives between distraction and contemplation. And I want to go back to this idea you talked about. It's not there's nothing wrong with learning for the sake of a job, et cetera, status. And in fact, because you have to make a living, there's a certain satisfaction that comes from 
achieving something. But you also make this point in the book that what starts off as a means, like, for, you know, it can end up as an end, right? Like the instrumentality of like learning can actually end up being the thing that leads that person to doing it just for the love of it. Oh, that's right. So yeah, that's, that's something I say to try to bring out too, that it's not learning for its own sake, as opposed to learning for the sake of something else, learning instrumentally. It's not, it's not like a matter of purity. So it's not as if you've got to just only do absolutely the most pure forms of learning and examine your conscience and make sure you're really doing it for your own sake and not its own sake and not for the sake of the grade or the achievement or the degree or anything like that. The fact is that most of the time, the types of learning we undertake have mixed motives. And what's interesting to me is that you can easily make a transition. I think it's very common from a very instrumental achievement-oriented approach to learning and learning for its own sake. So my favorite example is from uh, Steve Martin's autobiography. He's dating this woman as a, as a teenager. He's madly in love with her. And she's, she reads this book called uh, The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. And she tells him to read it. And he says, you know, I, if she'd told me to, what, to put on a ball gown, I would have done it. But she told me to read this book. So I read this book. And by reading the book, he falls in love with, with learning for its own sake, with wisdom, with philosophy as depicted there. And of course, he became a philosophy major in college, thanks to that. And that's an example of, you know, why did he start to read that book? Well, it was sort of people-pleasing. It was to get in with his girlfriend. It was to make her happy. And what happened along the way is that he actually ended up being touched in a different way by the learning and doing learning for its own sake. So similarly, I think it's very common, you know, people learn, say, their math and physics because they've they've got to get into a good college and those are the fields that really matter and they just study their butts off and all they're thinking about is getting the A or maybe the A plus and maybe the extra credit so they can get into the best schools. But it can happen that you pause for a second and suddenly realize how beautiful and fascinating mathematics or physics is. And I think that is is very, com- that's probably the way that most people who love learning for its own sake and do it at a professional or academic level, that's probably the way most it happens for most of us is you start out in the world of achievement and you you find yourself doing it for other reasons. You find yourself exploring different ideas which aren't necessarily directed at achievement. So that to me is a sign that there's something in us that really wants to learn this way. It's not imaginary. It's not moralistic. It's, it's just something that we want and something that's good for us and that we need to just recognize and try to cultivate. Yeah. I had that experience. I got my bachelor's degree in letters which is basically a humanities degree at the University of Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I did that because like everyone, because I wanted to go to law school and they're like, well, if you're going to go to law school, letters is a good degree to get. It's like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I ended up just falling in love with philosophy and literature. And like, you know, 20 years later, I'm, I'm still reading the stuff I was reading as an undergrad, but just, just for fun because I enjoy it. No, that's the perfect story. Exactly. I think that happens all the time. So I, for that reason, I, I try to be, I try to moderate my, my critique of the instrumental approach to education. I think it, it does a lot of good for people. It, and it, and it also can really be valuable. I mean, you, you, there's stuff that needs to be done and you've got to do some learning to do it. The only worry is when that, when you never get past that or, or when you're really discouraged from getting past that because 
you're so anxious about taking the time to really do something that you care about. All right. So there's just a pleasure of just learning for the sake of learning because it's just part of being human. We have a, a chance to do something that has no other, it's like not a means to anything else. It's That's just, right. It's leisurely. Well, well, another pleasure of it is that learning, the intellectual life can be a refuge from what you call, quote, the world. What do you mean by that? What is the world? So the world is a, a term of art, as we say. It's, it's a, a word I'm using in a very specific way. So I don't mean the world as in the outside world or the natural world. What I mean is the world basically of social competition, the world of striving for status and for money uh, and for advancement. So it's a place where the standards are a place that is, it's a a state of being really, or an attitude towards what you do which involves thinking about other people's standards. That is, it's it's externally directed. And what's wrong with it is not that there's anything wrong with being aware of the standards of other people or that there's necessarily anything wrong with engaging in the world of striving and competition. But I do think that if you live totally immersed in the world in this sense, then the way you're living is task after task, achievement after achievement. And there's an emptiness that goes along with that. There's a hollowness. There's a dependence on others, which is uh, not healthy. So much of our great literature, 19th century novels, it's about people who strive for recognition in the social world and they may get it for a time, but the world is capricious. It it gives favor one day and it takes it away the next. So we need in our lives sort of spaces of being, modes of being, which are withdrawn from considerations of status, withdrawn from considerations of money-making, withdrawn from the standards of the judgment of others. And so the inner life, in other words, what I call it, an inner life where you withdraw from the world and and cultivate things that you care about most. And it's the inner life that's a source of resilience. One of the my beefs with contemporary ways that we talk about education is we talk about educating for success, educating for achievement. There's nothing wrong with success and achievement, but they're not exactly always in our control. And you need to have resources within yourself to handle whatever happens. You need a way for your life to be rich and meaningful, even in the worst circumstances, even in uh, failure and uh, and despair. No. Well, I get that. Because when I was reading that section, it really resonated with me because this idea of the world, whenever, you know, we, I think everyone has to engage with it to a certain extent. But whenever I do, I often feel like I don't really own this. Like I don't, like a part of me, like I, whenever I put myself out there, I no longer own myself. Right. Right. Then other people can do say and have opinions about what I do, and and I, I don't know. You you start you you become aware that you're performing, and and that just feels weird. And so I like having that idea where I, I have a place where it doesn't matter what I do. This is, I'm just doing this for me. I don't care what anyone else says about it. Like it's a way to like when you go when you withdraw inward. It's a way to I don't know a way to restore dignity. I think. I think that's right. And I, as I'm thinking about it, there's in a way two ways of thinking about it. There's the way that I, I write about it mostly in the book, which is in the way that you just talked about it, where you, and I think this is a perfectly healthy way to live. You, 
you live part of your life out in the world in the realm of competition and the realm of status seeking. And you know, that's nothing wrong with that. But then you, you've got to take a break, you retreat, you find things that nourish yourself. That's really withdrawn from, from all of that stuff. So I think that's healthy. I, I also think that, and maybe I wish I'd said a bit more about this in the book. I think that if you become accustomed to living more inwardly and less focused on the external, the status markers, the competitive, the, the sense of performance and performance for an audience. I think truthfully, when you do get involved in the world, that is to say in the community, in the political world, in that I think what you do is actually more effective. I think you you have you can see more clearly what really matters. There's some independence from the judgments of others and some independence from competition for status is good even for outward-directed activity. It, it, it makes you more aware of what matters and more able to focus on doing work that's good as opposed to doing work that uh, meets the market of the moment. Well, this, is, uh, this reminds me of an example from Thoreau. Thoreau, you know, when he first started his career, he went to New York, he wanted to make a big splash in the literary world, and he just it was a total flop. Just everyone laughed <laughs> at him right. and said, get out of here. And so what he, do, well, he goes to the Walden Pond and he just starts doing He writes about nature, builds a shack, writes about whatever. And that's the thing that became like, that's, we, that's why we were talking about Thoreau today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And of course, it's ironic, just in the same way it's ironic that, of course, you know, this is, this is my first book and uh, it's, it's being received well. And it's all about how you shouldn't just try to do nothing but publish books and have impact. <laughs> so, it's, so I mean, a bit of not, I'm not as brilliant as Thoreau, but it's a similar situation where you, you can make your career by promoting being anti-career or something like that. <laughs> I think Thoreau is also a great example for thinking about inwardness. Uh, one of the things I discovered recently is Thoreau's journals which are extremely beautiful. You know, they're just full of these little reflections, usually on nature or, or something else. And, uh, th- you know, they're, they're not things he wrote for an audience, so far as I know. And they're, they're some of the best things he wrote. So I, that's another example, I think, of, yeah, just how much inwardness can matter not only for oneself, but for others. So what does this look like in the 21st century? Doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to a pond and build a shack. So, how, But how can you sort of withdraw and set up an intellectual space just for yourself? Well, I, th- I think that's what's challenging for most of us, especially these days, if you're, you know, if you have the good fortune to re- work remotely, it's hard to find a space that's not workspace or time that's not work time or that's not, you need time that's not designated to any particular purpose. And so carving out some piece of time, even if it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour to sit and think, to reflect, to write in a journal, to read, any of those things I think is really crucial the other thing I, I say in this context is I think it's very important to try to find other people who are also interested in undertaking learning for their own sake or or cultivating inner life. It sounds paradoxical because I'm talking about inwardness and a certain kind of self-sufficiency, but for all of these things, we need, we need a bit of help and support 
And I think that a friend or two who, who are also trying to do the same thing, who you can touch base with and swap notes with, I think that can make a huge difference to one's success in, in, in really carving out, carving out space for oneself. But it's so variable and so dependent on people's circumstances, the types of work they have, the types of family life they have, that I, it's hard to give very specific advice apart from carving out space no matter how, how small, carving out time no matter how short, and finding people to talk to about what you're doing so that you can have some support in that. Yeah, conversation, one of those human activities just that's pleasurable exactly. just for the sake of doing it. Exactly, exactly. I think that conversation for its own sake is also something a bit endangered. And where a conversation that's where you're really trying to seriously work something out with someone else, but not not for any particular purpose. I think even I don't have conversations like that as much as I used to have or as much as I might want to have, <laughs> even though I'm supposed to have built my life around it. So the, it's, yeah, I think conversation is great. Well, I think, I think what a lot of people try to do, they try to do it on the internet. Like they try to tweet this stuff or like, and like that never works. I don't know. I mean, maybe it does work. I've never had good, but like the best experiences I've had is when I've been with people I know, I've had like this connection with them. We're in person and we just sort of bounce ideas off each other. They go different places and it's edifying. When you try to do that on Twitter, I don't know, the mode of communication doesn't really allow that that much. You know, I, I have to say, I, I've had a very good experience on Twitter. I've been on for a little over a year. I got on to promote the book. I think one thing it's good for is connecting with people who have similar concerns or similar values. So I've, I've met a ton of people on Twitter who are seriously interested in learning for its own sake, who I never would have known about otherwise. Some of them are academics who are working, doing similar work as I am. Some of them are just ordinary people who are, who are trying to learn in kind of straightened circumstances. And Twitter is one of their only points of access. So you, you can connect with people that way. I, I agree with you that as far as real conversation is concerned, probably the best thing to do would be to use the internet to, to find the people and then bring those conversations into something like real life, <laughs> even right. a telephone conversation, if not an in-person conversation, try to build a real friendship beyond just the uh, social media connection. Well, so we've been talking about the, the pleasures of an intellectual life. What's something, like say someone, they're like, I want to do this, but I don't know how to get started. Like what's the first step someone can take in embracing this love of learning for the, just the love of learning? So uh, I think that I'm a big fan of what are called great books. You can take as broad a view of what they are as you like. There's great books in a variety of traditions from all over the world. Some of those overlap with, you know, the stuff that I tend to teach, which is what you'd call the Western tradition, but some of them don't overlap. And there's all kinds, every culture in the world has some repository of wisdom and learning that's worth investigating. So you, I think reading great books is a really, really good way of cultivating one's inner life and cultivating a life of reflection and cultivating a life of leisure. I think that the key obstacle actually more than time is of course community. So there's a, there's a, that's why I say find a friend or a pair of friends to read with. It doesn't take a lot of resources, right? You just need a couple of people and some books and uh, some time to talk and, you know, work through a book like a book club style and have conversations about it. 
And that will make it easier to motivate yourself. Because most of us nowadays, with the intent, with the attention spans we have, it's hard to read any book, much less a difficult book. So, so a little bit of social pressure is going to help. There's some online programs which help, which provide community. There's also, of course, local programs through public libraries and things like that, depending on where you live. So I, I think trying to find a way to, to study and to read seriously is, is one of the best things you can do. Well, Zena, this has been a great conversation. There's some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work. Sure. I have a webpage, xenahits.net, and there's reviews and a few other interviews and some podcasts on there if you want to get a taste of it. And the book itself, I'm proud to say I worked hard to make it pretty easy read. So I hope you'll, you'll take a look at that too. But anyway, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for listening, all of you listening. And, and thanks so much for your questions, Brett. Thanks so much, Zena. Thanks. My guest today was Zena Hitz. She's the author of the book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of Intellectual Life. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at our website, zenahitz.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash lost in thought, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. Enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. You can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com. Sign up. Use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the Win podcast, but put what you've heard into action. 